Welcome to the fourth episode of a new podcast, First They Came for the Immigrants. In this episode, Virginia Raymond talks with Nell Hahn, a retired civil rights lawyer currently based in Louisiana. They discuss immigrants' rights, why so-called detention centers are actually prisons, and the economic system built around immigrant incarceration. Hello, Nell. Hello. Um, Nell, I'm so glad you are here for this podcast, and I am pleased to welcome to anybody who's listening to um, Nell Hahn, who is a retired, of sorts, retired um, civil rights lawyer for many, many years, and is going to talk to us today about Louisiana and what's happening with immigrants who are so-called detained or held in prisons in Louisiana. Is that right now? That's right. <laughs> okay. Um, first of all, how long have you lived in Louisiana? I moved here in 1991 from Austin. Okay. So t- 29 years. It's amazing to me. I never <laughs> thought I'd be here more than, you know, five years, but here I am. And just briefly, without going into a lot of detail, what have you mostly done in those last 29 years? When I first moved here, I was wrapping up a law practice that I had in Austin, a a private practice where we did mostly employment discrimination law, uh, race and sex discrimination. I uh, was wrapping up a few cases. I went to grad school at LSU. I was ready for a change. I took environmental science and then I spent a few years working on a PhD in wetland ecology, which I decided at the end of that time that I'd make a pretty good, uh, as a scientist, I would make a pretty good lawyer. So I went back, <laughs> I looked for a job and I, I happened into a wonderful job at the disability rights uh, organization in Louisiana, which was then called the Advocacy Center. And I ended up working there for almost 20 years. And it was a wonderful job representing people and uh, with disabilities, advancing their rights under various uh, federal statutes. It was great rewarding work, but I I felt like I wanted to retire uh, when I turned 65. (laughs) And so I did. And that was in uh, the end of 2016. Great. So now you have um, your retirement probably doesn't look like everybody's retirement. And uh, I want to ask you about how you got involved in assisting and getting to know immigrants who are in prisons or jails in Louisiana. How did you get started with that? Well, I had been interested in the issue of immigrants' rights for many years, especially immigrants from Central America, because I got interested in Central America during the 70s and 80s when there was a war going on and we had so many uh, political asylees coming to Austin and I volunteered for a project called the Political Asylum Project of Austin, which some people may remember and probably associate with you, Virginia. <laughs> and, uh, and then, uh, so when I had done just a little bit of pro bono work when all the, the unaccompanied minors were coming in during, seems like the last years of the Obama administration, they were coming in over the border and there, were, there was pro bono program put together in New Orleans for, for private lawyers 
to represent those children in family court and in immigration court, sort of a combination. And I went to New Orleans. I live in Lafayette, which is a couple of hours outside of New Orleans. There was a tremendous response from the legal community, I have to say. But that project didn't go on very long. Um, and then after I retired, I again, influenced by Virginia Raymond, uh, saw a Facebook post about a project that was starting with the Southern Poverty Law Center, where they were starting something they called the Southeast uh, Freedom, Southeast Immigrant Freedom Initiative. And what they did was they took, they were setting up near immigration prisons in the South small law offices where they would get young, young lawyers to come in and live there and work and work to get people out on bond because it was so um, evident that these prisons are in the South particularly, I don't know elsewhere, are, are placed way out from population centers, very remote and difficult for the legal community to service. And so for these people to have representation, they really need to get out of detention so that they can uh, fight their cases where they can find uh, representation. So I went over there and volunteered and the first place they set up an office was in uh, rural Georgia, a town called Lumpkin outside a detention center that's getting a lot of news uh, the last week, uh, the Stewart Detention Center. Um, run by a private company, believe that's CoreCivic at that time. I think now it's run by a different private company. But at any rate, then, so I only volunteered for a week. I lived near the prison. I helped the lawyers um, work on the bond cases. And then I went back home, but I was really interested in the fact that there was a immigration prison in Louisiana, which I had known nothing about. And it was in a town called Gina, which is again, pretty far away. It's very far away from New Orleans. It's about two hours from Lafayette, maybe an hour and a half, uh, which is where I live. It's at least an hour and a half from Baton Rouge. It's, it's pretty remote. And it's also had a, a bad reputation in uh, Louisiana because there had been a very ugly racial incident there in I think like I'm not sure what year it was, but uh, where some uh, some kids were prosecuted for attempted murder for basically a schoolhouse fight and uh, schoolyard fight. Anyway, so I went out to Gina and did a week there. And so when I retired, I uh, I mean, I had already retired, but but then from there, the growth of the prisons in Louisiana, when I volunteered for the Southern Poverty Law Center in, I think it was 2017, there was just one immigration prison at Gina. And now there are 10. 10? Yes, I think 10. ten. I mean, we have to keep counting because some of them will close and then they'll open another. And, uh, but yeah, it went from, I mean, we went from only one immigration prison. Maybe there were a few immigration prisons in a, in prisoners in a few other locations like Oakdale, there's an immigration court and there's a federal prison. And it's possible there were some people held there. There's a, a 
people are flown out of Alexandria, so there may be some people held there very briefly. But there was really only one prison. It held about 1,200 people. And now, within, a, within another year, uh, there was another one. And it was, also, it, was close, it was also close to the center of the state in a rural area. It's called Pine Prairie, also run by a private company. I honestly believe people don't know. And I really would like to bring more people in to see these places and to meet the people that live there. I mean, that are detained there because I really, I, I certainly hope that the American people would be shocked if they understood that these are not criminals. I mean, not, I'm not saying that criminals, people who've committed uh, criminal offenses need to be incarcerated under harsh conditions. Cause I think that's a, a, a fault in our in our society as a whole, but certainly even if you want to look at it and say you shouldn't be in prison unless you did something that was bad and you belong there, these folks are no danger to the community. They're an expense to the taxpayer in these facilities, and they it would be so much. There's no need for it. It's just pure. As far as I can tell, it's driven by cruelty, and it's driven by the profit motive of, you know, whoever's profiting off it. And there are lots of people profiting off it. So. So we're going to get back to the profit motive and what drives the growth of this, um, the private prisons. But I want to ask about this word prison, because you've used the term prisons and you've used the term detention centers. And I hear these terms used somewhat interchangeably. Can you talk about how you use that language and how you see these places? Well, they're prisons. I mean, the, the detention center is a little bit of a euphemism. In fact, it's a legal fiction that's very destructive. And when we say legal fiction, it means it's something that is described by a term so that you can, oh, I don't know. I don't know what a legal fiction is, but it's a fiction. <laughs> These are prisons. In my job as a lawyer, before I worked for the, uh, before I retired, I represented, in fact, I represented prison guards in uh, Texas. I had uh, cases about black and Hispanic prison guards and I represented them. So I was familiar with conditions in prison there. Occasionally, I represented somebody who was in prison. So I'd visited prisons in Louisiana. But for the Advocacy Center, I did a lot of work with trying to make uh, the prisons accessible to people with disabilities so that they would have uh, phones that deaf people could use, so that they would have uh, facilities that people in wheelchairs could get through, so forth and so on. So I went to a lot of prisons. I went to the same prisons that I'm going to now. These are prisons. People are kept under the very same conditions. They wear jumpsuits and plastic shoes. And when they're moved around, they're often handcuffed or shackled. Um, visitation. I have had much more uh, direct visitation at Angola with uh, people who were in life, in prison for life, for criminal offenses than I've been able to have with people that have not committed any offense that are in these prisons. They, they're, they don't have contact visits in many of them. It's just, they're prisons. Now they use the word detention center because theoretically these people are not 
they're not subject to the criminal system. They're subject to it's a civil system. And this is called civil detention because they're not being punished for anything. They're just being held. And they're just being held so that they will comply with their court dates and not run away. And so they're not supposed to be under punitive conditions. So that's why they use the word detention center. And that's why they don't have a right to a court appointed lawyer at government expense because constitutionally a person who's being imprisoned has that right here, whether they're a citizen or not. And, um, but these people, because they're being held for an immigration proceeding are considered detained and not in prison, even though it's exactly the same thing. It's astonishing uh, what a word can do to just rhetorically and then actually physically change uh, what people's perception of what's happening to prison. And it really matters because, I mean, I haven't looked at the statistics recently, but, you know, I did look at them at one time and and the statistics were amazing that you were 10 times more likely to win your asylum case if you had an attorney than if you didn't. And the vast majority of the folks in these detention facilities can't afford an attorney. And it would be really expensive to get an attorney because look, they got to go all the way to Gina. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's, it's horrific. Can you describe a room for us, a, a solitary room in one of these immigration facilities? It's just, it's, it's completely bare the tiny little metal bunk and a very little light and a, a, a toilet sink combination. They, all of the places have a toilet sink combination where there's a toilet seat and then there's the back of the toilet and then the sink goes into the back of the toilet. And I think you drink out of the sink or you wash and you wash your hands in your sink and the bed was low to the floor. I expect it's to keep people from hanging themselves. But if you looked at that room, and if you had to spend any time in there, you'd want to hang yourself. I mean, it was awful. It's hard to describe just how awful that can be. If you imagine yourself being in there and the light, you know, the lack of light. Mm -hmm. When I, uh, well, it's another story. But and it wasn't from seeing the prison. It was when I was staying in Georgia. I was staying in that little house next to the prison. And uh, occasionally people's families were staying there too. They they had the volunteers who didn't want to spend money on a hotel in Columbus, which was a half an hour away, could bunk in this this house. It was lovely. Um, And some family members stayed. and, And one of the nights I was there, some people had gotten out of, of Stewart detention facility and I would just drop them off at this little house. And I mean, the, the nearest bus station was 30 miles away. So anyway, but they were welcome at the house and, and this man, when I got to talking to them, this man, his eyes were all red. He was 40. No, he was, he was in his fifties at least, or maybe sixties. He'd been in the U S for 40 years. He had a construction business in a Southern town, not, not in Georgia, a different state. And he had been somehow picked up. He had not arranged, he had been on a work visa at one time, but you know, it expired and he didn't have the money to get it reinstated. Anyway, 
he had just gotten out. He'd been in there for five months and he had just gotten out on bond and his eyes were all red and watering. And he said, they never turned the lights off. And he, he, he said, you know, everybody had inflamed eyes. He was a nice man and he went out and bought us all fried chicken and a big <laughs> case of Coke. That was his, <laughs> and he shared it with everybody that was in the house. And we took him to the bus and he didn't want to get out of the car when we got to the town where the bus station was and we were going in to get something. He was, nope, I'm going to stay right here. <laughs> and I didn't blame because him. he was, why did he, he want to stay scared. in the car? He was scared. He'd been picked up for nothing and put in, he'd never committed a crime. He had family here. I mean, that was the kind of thing that made me so shocked that this was going on. <laughs> You mentioned um, solitary confinement, and that, I understand, is one of the reasons why it's still in the courts, but Canada has said that the United States is not a safe country for asylees because we have these detention facilities, aka really prisons, and use solitary confinement, which Canadians believe is torture, is equivalent to torture. Um, And I think many there's a lot of support for that um, idea and for that recognition around the world. Definitely. Uh, I want to get back to um, your comment, uh, not your comment, but your, your observation that uh, you went from Gina, one immigration prison in Louisiana to about 10 right now. Where are these different prisons or immigration facilities now in Louisiana? Are they all in rural Louisiana or some close to New Orleans or to, you know, Lake Charles? None are close to New Orleans. The largest population centers that are close to, and, you know, when you're saying close, Alexandria is a small city in the center of Louisiana. It doesn't have a large immigration bar. It has a few, but, uh, but that is about 45 minutes from Gina and about 45 minutes from Pine Prairie. And those are the closest detention facilities to an urban area. Um, Lafayette is about an hour from Pine Prairie and about an hour from, uh, Uh, the women's facility, which is in between here and Lake Charles. And that's the southernmost. It's it's in uh, a town called Basile, a Cajun town. And it's, uh, but it's pretty remote. I mean, that's a rural area. And so they're all in rural areas. Louisiana is a weird state. It's very divided. I mean, it's, we sort of divided into South Louisiana and North Louisiana. North Louisiana is anything north of I-10. These are all north of I-10. And the the rural parishes, they're on rural parishes. None are in a, I guess there's a fair, there's one that's fairly close to the town of Monroe, which is up near the very, it's really on the Mississippi border, I think. And so that Richwood is uh, close to Monroe. That's within 10 minutes. It's not a very big facility, and it's um, it's horrible. It's um, a local jail that has been dedicated to ICE facilities. That's something I, I hope we do get a chance to talk about, because I think that's one of the phenomena that's going to make this so hard uh, 
to to get rid of. Let's just go there now. And I know we have, uh, we want to talk about some other things going on in the uh, immigration prisons, but tell me what you mean. Well, <clears throat> I, I got interested also. I, I mean, I, I, I was saying that I don't want to say, well, the people here aren't criminals as though it's okay to, that our mass incarceration of, of especially people of color in the United States and in the South particularly is okay. And I've been interested in the fact that until 2017 reforms, Louisiana has the highest population of, of people in prison through the criminal justice system of any jurisdiction in the world. I mean, higher than China, higher than Iran, <laughs> you know, higher than any place was Louisiana. And uh, so we, we have a very, very harsh and punitive and expensive and stupid um, system of incarceration here. And so I was active for a while and I got to know the Southern Poverty Law Center well through a coalition of groups that were working on uh, criminal justice reforms. And in 2017, we were able to pass a really, uh, just a first step toward making uh, the criminal justice system work. And it would involve less incarceration. It would mean fewer people in prison and more people being helped to reenter the community, to get jobs, to have skills, to be reunited with their families, to have uh, you know, skills to deal with their families. Um, it was a, to reinvest savings from incarceration in actually uh, rehabilitating and, and restorative justice for, for victims of crime too, because this system doesn't work for anybody. So we were able to reduce the prison population a little bit. And uh, along come the private prisons. And it's not just the private prisons because the way it works in Louisiana, you have your state prison system, which is immense and expensive, but many state prisoners are held in local jails, um, especially soon, you know, right before they're released, say if they're within a year or so of release, they'll be moved to a local jail, which is not actually better because local jails don't have a lot of the programs and facilities that the state prisons have. But the state, you know, this, the state sheriff's department, nobody likes to pay taxes here. We're very averse to taxes. We don't want to support our local uh, sheriff's departments in, in their, uh, you know, very much. So what the local sheriffs will rent their beds basically to the state and get paid for it. So this goes not only into the state economy, but it goes into the, the parish economies. So when the state cut back on prisoners, that created problems for some of these parishes. Well, this just seemed to coincide with the immense growth in uh, detention because detention nationwide since, since uh, 2016 has skyrocketed. I mean, it was going up anyway. But it's gone up even more. Like I think, I think they pass a law every year that says that guarantees ICE a, a certain amount of payment 
And it's the equivalent of like 32,000 people in prison every day, immigrants in prison every day. Well, it went up from 32,000 back in 2016 or whenever, up to like 50,000. So, I mean, there was this huge increase in, in uh, demand for prison beds. And guess what? We're real good at that in Louisiana. We, we know how to keep people in prison. And we do it pretty cheap compared to other states. So uh, some local sheriffs, as well as the state, as well as the state, learned that they could make money. And the, the, the state, I think, paid the local jail something like, it was under $30 a night wow. to house one of their prisoners. And the federal government entered into independent contracts with the different parishes and so forth. But they were paying like much more. And I don't want to name a number because I haven't looked at it recently, but it seemed to me that it was like, $120 a night. I mean, it was like a hotel, you know, the, the, the uh, amount that these sheriffs were able to get. So like one sheriff in uh, Allen Parish, which is between here and Lake Charles, he um, built, he got state bond money to build like a 250 bed extra prison and he was very open about it and said, I can make money. I am going to be creating jobs in my parish and I'm going to be able to use this money to buy more squad cars and more deputies. You know, it's, it's a money-making operation for these local uh, sheriffs. And then of course, when you're putting prisons, you're putting institutions, you're putting uh, that kind of thing you want to put it in a rural area, not only because of the not in my backyard phenomenon in the cities, but because there are no jobs out there. Rural Louisiana is dying. People are moving away and they're not coming back. There's nothing for them to do there. There's some lumber mills, there's agriculture, and there's prisons. And this is a, and when they get these jobs, they pay, they pay like, federal pay scale. Our minimum wage in Louisiana is, I think it's still seven and a quarter, but these oh. jobs were paying $15 an hour, $20 an hour. So the local economies really, they, they need these jobs. So that's, it's just, a, it's a system that's going to be awful hard to eradicate. And even though, you know, one of my you know, my my tendency is to hate these large private prison companies, GEO and CoreCivic and LaSalle, et cetera. But the people who are getting these jobs as the actual uh, correctional officers in these detention centers are just, they're not, they're not getting rich off of this. They may be making $15 an hour, but they're not the enemy um, in the sense that they are people who are trying to, you know, work and pay a mortgage or pay rent or whatever, um, really pitting poor Louisiana people against immigrants. So the poor against the even poorer uh, or more low income. I think, you know, I think sometimes, I think you'll get a variety of people in those positions. I think the nature of the position 
is one that lends itself to brutalization because of your power over other human beings. I think when you lock somebody in a cage and you give somebody else the keys to that cage, you kind of encourage that person to kind of have to dehumanize the prisoner in, in their mind. And, and that can lead to all kinds of abuses. And it has led to all kinds of abuses. And many of the immigrants that I've talked to have, have really been hurt by the by how badly they're talked to and treated by some of the guards. So I can't say, you know, I can't say, well, these are, you know, they're not the enemy. I mean, in some ways they become, but yeah, I think just if you look at it as an economic situation and an economic system, the people that are taking the jobs are certainly not getting rich. And I mean, I, I sometimes say, you know, we could be spending our money on community colleges. We could be spending our money on investing in people learning to be teachers or learning to be dental hygienists or medical workers or whatever, veterinarians. But instead, we're hiring people to be jailers. And I don't really think anybody, you know, any child sits there and say, man, I really want to be a prison guard when I, when I grow up. You know, we ought to be giving people in rural areas better opportunities than that to yeah. do with their lives. And sometimes yeah. I talk to people who are disgusted by what they see. You know, I have talked to people who are not happy, that are working there and are not happy with what they're seeing and that try to help you, even ICE employees, you know, which... That's a whole other thing. Right. So many different ways to go, but I want to return to your um, initial interest in immigration um, back from when Central American refugees were coming, especially into Texas. And so we met a lot of them in the early 1980s. Are those the same people that you're seeing in Louisiana? Is it mostly Central Americans? And I know that we've had lots of different things happen in the last four or five years. Um, and so Central Americans are not coming into the country right now, first because of uh, the so-called Remain in Mexico program, and then because also of COVID, uh, the complete shutdown on people. But who do you see, who are some of the people that you visited, uh, obviously not with any specifics about individual people but who are the people who are coming and who are who is being locked up in these immigration prisons in Louisiana well they're really coming from all over the world it's amazing I was surprised because I expected it to be primarily Central Americans and even Mexicans but uh in the women's prison those are the people that I have visited have been from Central America. Mm -hmm. um, now, some of those people were actually living in Mississippi and working in uh, rural towns and were picked up in a big raid that they had in Mississippi in was it last September. Yeah, it was a year ago, September, because it was right or August, right when school was starting. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, so the women's prison, more Central Americans, some Brazilians, um, Venezuelans. I, in the, in the um, 
male prisons that I visited and the people that I correspond with, it's a lot of people from Cuba. Lots and lots of Cubans are here. Um, and then people from India and Pakistan. I, uh, I met a lot of people from India and Pakistan in Jackson Parish Correctional Center, which is in North Louisiana, and in Gina. And in, uh, in certain facilities, I met a lot of Ghanaians. And in right now, there's a whole lot of people from Cameroon, English-speaking people from Cameroon, because there's, and I have not learned enough about this, but apparently there's a great deal of repression in Cameroon by the military against the English speaking population because there's another group that speaks French. And uh, so the, the ones that I have met are English speakers from Cameroon, but people come from all over the world. Um, those, are, those are the primary ones. Okay. Thank you. And you mentioned Indians. Um, now something particularly hard happened with the Indian immigrants recently. They were on a hunger strike, right? Or some yeah. of them were? We met, uh, we met five guys that were at the um, immigration facility in Gina, who had, one of them had started a hunger strike. And then when he, he'd been on it for, I don't know, quite a while, three or four weeks, he was uh, flown over to El Paso, Texas, and watched his compatriots, I don't know much about that, but watched some other hunger strikers be forcibly fed under court order by ICE. And, and when they're force fed, first they're uh, forced to have intravenous uh, hydration and fluids, and then if they still persist in their hunger striking, they'll be forced to have a tube forced down their nose. And uh, so after seeing that, he went off his first hunger strike. But he went back on a hunger strike in, at, on Halloween. And he and four other Indians in uh, detention in Gina went on a hunger strike. And they were extremely serious they were not going to eat. They were not going to even drink water. What was their complaint other than being in, in, in the Gina prison? Were they, what was their goal? Um, had they already had their asylum hearings? Had they lost? Were they waiting so long? Or what was going on with them? Well, that was, that was odd because I think one of them had not had his asylum hearing and he had not even asked for bond which was the only way really he could get out others were in different stages some had final deportation orders some had their cases on appeal i think the rest of them if i remember correctly at least three of them had lost their cases i'm not quite sure about the fourth and really because I'm usually not able to hook people up with pro bono lawyers because we only have about five in the whole state and they're busy and they don't want you saying, Hey, there's this guy. Um, 
you know, we don't promise people we can get them immigration lawyers. So I didn't look at their cases that carefully because I was not, I didn't want them to think that I was going to be able to represent them because I can't. So, Mm -hmm. but no, they, their, their demand was they wanted out. Mm -hmm. They wanted to fight their cases from freedom, not from being in prison. They had never been in prison before. And they, they just felt like they should not be there. And if it's, I believe, possibly something that is very uh, ingrained in the Indian culture, because that's how India got its freedom. Mahatma Gandhi went on a hunger strike, you know, and I think probably a lot of people did if I knew more about Indian history, but I've had people tell me, Indians tell me that that's something that is not as strange to an Indian as it is to an American. Um, But anyway, it it was a brutal, brutal thing to watch. And I interrupted the flow of your story to ask what the demand was. So what happened? Well, the demand was freedom. And, and it was, it was excruciating because what we, what we were doing was visiting, was giving them support and was trying to get their story out and also try to, connect with other people who had dealt with hunger strikes, like the people in Texas, there was more of an organization. And we can talk about a little more how, how few people there were or are who are fighting this in Louisiana. I mean, there's a very small group of people and we had 10 prisons and, and one thing I would say was, you know, well, they all should get out, you know? (laughs) And so but uh, so we were visiting them and meeting with them and trying to get their stories out and trying to see what we could do for them. Um, given how atrocious everything is, given the fact that this um, entrenchment and the growth of the private prison industry is not just not just because of the profit motive, but also just to sustain, you know, local governments in Louisiana uh, is so entrenched that no matter who wins or loses in November, that's a problem that we'll have to deal with. Um, Because it's, if you have a whole economy based on incarceration, that's not going to go away with one candidate or another, even if it's the candidate we want. So given all of that, what gives you hope? Hmm. I have to think about this. I mean, one thing that gives, I've been reading about the abolitionists from the 19th century, 18th and 19th century. And, and that was, uh, that was an economic system that was at least, you know, was even more worldwide, was even more well entrenched, was even more, uh, um, seemingly impossible to solve. And I grew up in the South and we weren't taught much about the abolitionists except for they were all kind of crazy mm-hmm. and, you know, fanatics. And real honestly, that's how people were taught about that then. I sure hope they're taught better now. But uh, anyway, I think we have to hope that, the, that people will have a better moral sense than, than 
they have now that when we really expose what's going on and really the, the Black Lives Matter movement and the people who are trying to communicate the, the need for a, for something other than incarceration as a, and, and punitive uh, law enforcement as the solution to our problems. Um, I, I, I have to feel like our, our, uh, the, the change will come from within, will come from the souls of people who will see the injustice of this system. I don't think we can do it on strictly economic terms. Mm-hmm. I think, and, and you know, I think abolishing private prisons would be a great idea, but you're still going to have the fact that the, the public prisons are a problem. You do, you do have a lot more people now, I think, that are conservative politically who are on the side of doing away with mass incarceration. And I think as we see more and more migration, which we're likely to see with climate change, that on some level, people are gonna have to start understanding that you cannot solve the problems of poverty and inequality in this country or in the world by having, uh, by force alone, by, by, in, by criminal justice and criminal-like <laughs> enforcement. And that's what we've got here. We're trying to solve the problem of inequality between uh, our country and poor countries by building a wall and policing it with guns. And if somebody gets past the wall, holding them in prison and policing that with guns. And in our communities, if we have poor communities and richer communities, we want to have gated communities and lots of armed cops. And I think, I think defund the police is a bad slogan because I think it's, it's people can't understand it. But that's what I have hope in, is that we somehow have to get through to people that this isn't the way to go. You know, this is not going to work. And honestly, people who are conservative and the way they were able to get the criminal justice reforms through politically was because there's a group called Right on Crime. And they went with us for certain... uh, there was a coalition. There's got to be a coalition. And this is too expensive. I think you can talk to people who are paying taxes about how expensive it is. Maybe you can put, I don't know, you can't put much rehabilitation and social services and stuff to work in these rural areas. I don't know what the solution to rural Louisiana is. I just think it can't be prisons. Now, this has been so helpful so great i um so good to get it off my chest (laughs) yeah well um like i said i could uh listen to you tell um more about your thinking about this and your experiences forever um right now i just want to say thank you for this period of time that we've been talking and i will talk to you soon about you know what (laughs) all right all right thank you bye-bye bye You've been listening to First They Came for the Immigrants, a new podcast. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts 
and be sure to give us a rating and review, which helps people find the podcast. Our audio was produced by Avi Hurwitz, who also performed the music at the introduction to the podcast. Outro music by progressive social justice rock band Swerve Left. Find us on Facebook and be sure to like us and follow us there. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.